None of this is being recorded, am I correct? Now we're on. All right. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're here for the purpose of growth, and you may turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 this morning. Where we are going to get our first glimpse at the Galilean ministry with the healing of the nobleman's son. The outlining all starts over now with uh, this particular event in the life of Christ. Oh, I remember what I wanted to do. I was going to show our progress in the harmony of the Gospels. Before we do any of this, though, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to sanctify our thinking and set aside distraction. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do come humbly before the throne of grace this morning and thank you for the privilege of assembling together to receive instruction. And Father, we're thankful for the freedom we still enjoy in this nation to assemble together, to have a prayer meeting and a Bible class in a, in a, a public building with a sign out front. We're not uh, afraid of the government coming in and shutting us down or shipping us off to a uh, Siberian camp somewhere. But Father, we uh, also recognize at the same time when you supply freedom, that, uh, Father, these are blessings that are often taken for granted. And believers have the freedom to assemble. They also have the freedom to not assemble. And, and all too often, Father, negative volition expresses itself that way. So while we acknowledge your blessings and are thankful for them, at the same time, we ask that you would supply to us a diligence to make use of these blessings and these freedoms a, uh, in, give us an increased hunger after your truth and father uh, continue to keep our eyes open to the snares all around us that we are in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation that we are uh, truly engaged in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict and and for believers whose uh, volition starts to waver whose hunger starts to fade father we pray that you might uh, increase that appetite and supply an even greater sense of urgency we just thank you and praise you so much for all the ways that you bless us and we look to you now to open our, the eyes of our understanding and guide us in the truth. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, with the conclusion of last week's study on the woman at the well, we brought to an end the portion of the life of Christ that's centered in that area here in the Harmony of the Gospels. Now, we are following a Harmony of the Gospels that uh, I took from the Nelson's, I think it was, uh, complete books of maps and charts and so forth, and that's one of any number of different harmonies that are available. And when you look at two or three different harmonies, you will find some disagreements here or there. We'll discuss one of those disagreements this morning when we get into the healing of the nobleman's son because there are some people that confuse that with the healing of the centurion's servant or son. And uh, whereas I think it's more accurate to view them as separate events and this harmony reflects that as well as a couple of other places where I found myself to be in agreement with this particular harmony. And so this one very quickly became my favorite. It was not my favorite, though, in the dating methodology. In fact, I think Nelson holds to a 30 A.D. crucifixion, for example, and a, a 4 B.C. Uh, birth of Christ, for example. And so I took the Nelson's Harmony of the Gospels and I modified the dating structure based upon uh, my own studies, based upon primarily um, Harold Honer and his chronological aspects of the life of Christ. Excellent, excellent material. So what you have here in this Harmony of the Gospels is really a hybrid table the, the basic structure coming from Nelson, but then the dating method being modified. And uh, in the process of this, we have published some notes, when, uh, really one major section of notes, when we concluded the, uh, the introductions to Jesus Christ. Are you able to see this okay? Is it too small up there on the wall? Kind of small. Well, we had a section titled The Introduction of Jesus Christ, had three areas on it, and then a section titled Birth, Infancy, and Adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist, and that had 17 areas attached to it. And so when we got through the, basically the visit to the temple, the uh, you know, I can zoom in on this. That's no biggie. We can get as big as you want to get. There we go. Um. Once we got through the visit of the Magi, the escape to Egypt, the murder of the babies and all of these, the childhood, the visit to the temple when he was 12 years old, that really became, because the summary of Jesus' growth to adulthood was just a couple of verses there. Uh, once we got through Luke chapter 2, 
Then we published a packet of notes, and hopefully you have those. If you don't, we can get some more printed off. I did find one more that hadn't been handed out, so I have one more of those up front here that you can take this morning. If you never got that um, packet of notes that was originally distributed. Anyway, that covered the introduction of Jesus Christ and then the birth, infancy, and adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist. And then, since that point of time, we have moved on to deal with this these next couple of sections here, the truths about John the Baptist and then the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And you might recall that there had been an error in our Harmony printings that had combined uh, these two sections into one section. And and when we found that error last November, we were pleased to uh, remedy that, repair the the Harmony chart, and uh, to, to put out a corrected Harmony chart. If you find that you still have a Harmony chart, that only has truths about John the Baptist with 12 points under it, then you have the incorrect chart. Uh, and you will find that you don't have the heading that says beginning of Jesus' ministry, and you'll find that you don't have those four items that were supposed to be under truths about John the Baptist. So if you have one of those flawed charts, we can replace that for you. If you're not sure which chart you have, just show it to me and I'll tell you whether it was an old incorrect one or the newer proper one. Anyway, this morning we have new notes, and you won't need them for this class. You can pick one up on your way out the door, but they are down in front here. And they take you through everything up to the woman at the well. And so uh, you're going to want to take a packet of those before you go. And uh, I think I made enough. I made 15 for this morning. We can make some more. Um, anyway, and that will cover these, uh, these sections here. From truths about John the Baptist down through the beginning of Jesus' ministry, basically through the woman at the well, leaving us off here at verse 42 or 45, so to speak, in John chapter 4. Everything up through last week is now available in printed format. And so we arrive this morning at the beginning of the Galilean ministry, starting now at where I dated 30 A.D., uh, we are dealing with really the largest stretch of his ministry. This Galilean ministry takes you through, and I want to just spend a little bit of time maybe um, giving a little survey or a, a reminder of, of what this portion of his ministry is all about because it's really the best known uh, of the life of Christ. It really is uh, contained in the Synoptic Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke accounts. Uh, some of the, the most well-known miracles occur in this time. The uh, parables occur in this time. Some of the uh, better-known uh, messages that Christ delivered, the events and conflicts that he went through are all during this time. And so we can look at it. Um, and as I say, it is primarily, when you look at your Harmony of the Gospels chart, it's primarily going to come from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's primarily, we've been dealing with John in a lot of this early stuff, in John's uh, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Now we're going to get more into the Synoptic Gospels, such as this morning, well, after this morning, when we get past the healing of the nobleman's son, we're going to get into the rejection at Nazareth. Uh, and the events that follow, and these are all going to be basically synoptic gospel records. And by synoptic gospels, we're talking about Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three that were written first. All right? But from the healing of the nobleman's son, which we'll handle today, uh, being rejected at Nazareth. There were two events in Nazareth, by the way. And uh, going through on a harmony basis and studying it like this helps us to spot the two different events. Not every harmony will view them as two events, but I think the better ones do. The, the move to Capernaum, the four that say, you know, become fishers of men. It's a well-known story, but uh, without going through the detail of this uh, synopt uh, this uh, harmony, we might be confused as far as how do these disciples get called, because we thought some of them have already been called, right? In terms of those that were following John the Baptist, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And these are the very same that Jesus says, all right, now follow me, become fishers of men. And we find out that they had gone back to their fishing business at this point of time when Jesus relocates in Capernaum and starts his traveling ministry around uh, around the particular region here. Peter's mother-in-law being healed, um, well-known. I'm not sure why it's so well-known of all the people that he ever healed, other than it clues us into the fact that Peter had a mother-in-law and that he was married, you know. And I find it remarkable the first pope was allowed to be married. And, and of course, the <laughs> speaking a little bit tongue-in-cheek, he was not the first pope, but they claim him as the first pope. Really, many of the first popes for centuries were allowed to be married until about the 5th or 6th century. After that, they started insisting on the celibacy. 
Um, but other things that happen here, the, demo the demoniac being healed, uh, the leper healed, you know, where the roof is open and they let this guy down. Uh, that's not the leper, but the leper being healed. Um, the paralytic is the one that was let down through the roof. Uh, the call of Matthew, you know, here's the tax collector sitting in his booth and his call and then the the party that he hosts for other tax collectors. And he wants other people to know about salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, so we'll, uh, some of these are very well known events. Um, his second Passover event number 12 that you see there. It's really the tracking of those Passovers that helps us to chart the overall ministry of Jesus Christ at roughly three and a half years. And for that, we are very grateful for the Gospel of John. You'll notice it's not counted in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but this Passover is covered in John chapter 5. And if we didn't have the Gospel of John, if we didn't have the structure that helps us to see these Passovers coming and going and coming and going, uh, we wouldn't understand the three and a half year time frame. If all we have was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we could pack the entire ministry of Jesus Christ in something just under a year. See, And so we, we recognize that the crucifixion event was a Passover, uh, but we would struggle to have Passovers beyond that if all we had was Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So the Gospel of John really helps us to establish a, a framework for the overall life of Christ. Um, other events here, including the plucked grain, you know, it was on the Sabbath and the Pharisees had the conniption fit because of that. The um, Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 was all delivered during the Galilean ministry. And we're going to have to spend a lot of time on the Sermon on the Mount because it's so misunderstood and mistaught by non-dispensationalists mainly, but even dispensationalists screw up the Sermon on the Mount by saying, well, that's all just millennial and has nothing to do with us at all. We've got to stop and say, wait a minute, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. That includes the Sermon on the Mount. There is church-age application of the Sermon on the Mount even when we do accept the fact that it is the presentation of kingdom law, and it is looking forward to millennial fulfillment, we still profit from its teaching, and we still better learn what uh, the Beatitudes are about and what the remainder of the uh, Sermon on the Mount is all about. The centurion servant healed. Uh, this is an event that a lot of folks get confused with what we're going to look at this morning with the healing of the nobleman's son. And they think, well, it's the same event. It's just the different authors were confused. Okay, the people that tell you those kind of things are the people that don't think God wrote the Bible in the first place. They think that, well, you know, just people collected traditions and stories and it just kind of through, you know, memories and oral traditions. These things were gradually compiled and put together. No, it's the wrong answer. God wrote the Bible. All scripture is God breathed. And we accept the fact that the nobleman is not a centurion. The centurion is not a nobleman. There's a difference between a son and a servant. And uh, we can handle these things, I think, fairly well. Um, the, the resurrection of the widow's son at Nain, um, other events here, the, um, the event where John the Baptist has some, uh, questions. We're going to spend some time on that and, uh, really, hopefully next week's class at the rejection of Nazareth is going to lay some groundwork for that, where, uh, a lot of people dump on John the Baptist that somehow he had just... Uh, you know, a weak sissy moment. He grew weak in the faith and he got scared because he was in jail and all this other stuff. And uh, and I think that's the wrong approach. Although Jesus did say, blessed are they who keep from stumbling over me. I think that there was a stumbling moment, but I don't believe that John actually was stumbling in that event. And so we will discuss that as well. He, John, uh, Jesus was warning him not to stumble, but I believe that uh, the Baptist questions were very legitimate. Are you the one we're looking for? Or do we look for another? That was a legitimate question. And First uh, Peter proves that it was a legitimate question and not that uh, John the Baptist was some kind of sissy. He was the greatest of those born among women, and I think we have to accept that for uh, at face value. Um, all these other aspects, calming of the sea, walking on water, feeding 5,000, um, calling the 12, sending out the 12, all of these are uh, Galilee ministry uh, periods of his, of his ministry. Walking on water, I said, feeding 5,000, feeding 4,000, two different events. Again, some people say, well, you know, those were confused stories. No, two different events. They're both recorded by Matthew. And so 
you know, if if it was a confusion of stories, why did Matthew record both stories? See, so it's not a matter of different authors having it wrong. Uh, Matthew records them both, and that becomes a clue as well. Um, the other events here: Peter's great confession. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, and the great thing there upon this rock I will build my church. Things we're going to have to deal with because it has nothing to do with Roman Catholicism, but it does have everything to do with angelic conflict and the dispensation of the church. That we are indeed engaged in the intensified stage. That the, the gates of Hades are very real in the conflict that we have to deal with. So we will look at that as well. Um, Jesus' brother's advice, that's again, as Gospel of John, chapter 7, helps us to clue in on the dates involved. That was not a Passover, though, but it was a Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. It still helps us to understand the, the time that is going by. All right, so 56 events in the uh, Galilean ministry. Then the Judean and Perean ministry, starting in the fall before he's crucified, October 32 A.D. Then... Uh, then the final week at Jerusalem, March of uh, 33 A.D., crucified on April 3rd, Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D. All right, so that kind of gives you a sense of where we are. And I think you say, well, this is our, whatever lesson this is, this is uh, Life of Christ, Lesson 62. And we've just now gotten to the Galilean ministry. And you say, Pastor, I've calculated that... Um, we should finish this study roughly five years after the rapture. Well, <laughs> no. Um, I do anticipate that having laid a lot of groundwork and having done enough uh, homework now in these early foundational stages that it really should start taking off. With the Galilean ministry, with parables, with miracles, with uh, events and things, I do anticipate that things will, will speed up significantly. All right, so... Speaking of which, let's look at this healing of the nobleman's son. John chapter 4. Now, this uh, is on the heels of the Sumerian revival. And uh, the fact that he was escaping from uh, Judea at the time might escape our notice because the chapter does begin with him leaving Judea to return to Galilee. And if you just peek back at verse 3, or verse 1, which explains the conflict. When, Jesus, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, verse 3 says, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. We've discussed this in previous classes. He didn't have to geographically, didn't have to even culturally, but he had to spiritually because that was the direction the Holy Spirit was sending him. So he is fleeing, as it were, to Galilee, and uh, he had to go through the Samaritan region because that's where the positive volition was, and that's where the Father wanted him to bear fruit. But the passing ministry being complete, he now uh, is returning to or, or going to where the Father wants him to minister for the next couple of years, and that is in the Galilean region. Now, after, as it says in verse 43, after two days he went forth from there into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came into Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more this morning because it really reflects a negative attitude on the part of the Galileans that they were excited to have a miracle worker among them, but they were not necessarily excited about any message that he happened to uh, deliver. They were excited about the miracle worker. They were excited about uh, the big splash that he made in Jerusalem. And they were thankful that, you know, one of their own, so to speak, was returning back to Galilee, you know, coming back home. And yet, as Jesus testifies, and as the proverb rightly declares, um, a prophet is without honor in his own country. This is going to be a place of conflict. And I find it remarkable that even though it's going to be a place of conflict, that's where Jesus goes because that's where the Father wants him to go. 
See, the scripture doesn't say run with endurance the race set before you, uh, the race that you pick out for yourself. It says run with endurance the race set before you. God the Father places you where you need to be, and that may be involved in conflict, where Jesus Christ is going to find himself here in this Galilean ministry. So a prophet without honor to have this parable or to have this uh, proverb cited as a motivation is remarkable because he's not leaving the scene of the conflict. He is entering the scene of the conflict, knowing full well that there's going to be conflict during his time there. Now, the Galileans received him, having seen the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. And their motivation is going to be for the miracles, for the work, not for the message and that should become clear as well so verse 46 therefore he came again to cana of galilee where he had made the water wine and there was a royal official whose son was sick at capernaum now one of the things i would also like to start doing in the process of this is more geography studies particularly when we get to this Galilean ministry where he's going to be touring the various regions of Galilee. And I know many Bibles have these little maps in the back of them, and those are helpful to help you follow along. I'm going to try to put some slides together as well to uh, to do this. But the uh, drawing of the uh, the region here is simple enough because you can simply draw your Mediterranean Sea, then you can draw your regions here of uh, of Israel. The The Judean region is where he's been up till this point this is where he came uh, to jerusalem he came down here to the river jordan to be baptized and uh, much of what we've studied so far up to this point has happened or transpired down here his co-ministry with the baptist and so forth the uh, samaritan region in between we did a little bit of work on that and then the galilean region up north across here is perea now as we mentioned, the typical hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans prevented travel this way. And the typical route would be to cross the Jordan, go north or south, and cross back, rather than pass through Samaritan territory. They hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated them. Trying to purchase uh, food and supplies along the way would be costly, as the Samaritans would be charging you know, two, three, five times normal rates to any Jew. That is, assuming the Jews were headed northbound. When they were headed southbound, they, there was nothing for sale at any price. They would turn them out of the city. And, uh, for instance, they would see, here's Jews on their way to Jerusalem. They're going to Passover or what have you. Samaritans would say, forget it. We're not supporting that. No food for sale. And uh, later on, we'll look at that towards the end. In fact, right before the crucifixion, the, uh, this happens, and the Sons of Thunder want to call in the artillery and, and nuke the, the Samaritan city to smithereens. All right. Well, this text in John 4 tells us that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And so rather than go the standard route, he proceeds immediately north like that. And it's indicative of a number of things, including the fact that there's positive volition here. There's going to be a revival here with this woman at the well and the men of Sakar, But also perhaps the haste with which they had to flee, the, the way that people were watching. For example, they were watching John the Baptist. They were watching him. They, uh, there may be bandits on the road watching, expecting them to travel this direction and so forth. Well, then he comes this direction. All right. Now, the places we want to spotlight include Capernaum on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. This is the Sea of Galilee, by the way. This is the Dead Sea. Uh, Capernaum is on the northwest uh, corner of the Sea of Galilee, and there's going to be a lot of events that take place in Capernaum. The uh, Nazareth is southwest of Capernaum, and Cana is nearby, almost on the southern boundary of Galilee. So when Jesus crosses over from the Sumerian region into the Galilean region, Cana will be one of the first places that he comes to. And it's interesting, too, that this official, we don't even know his name. I'm going to be calling him the Basilikos quite a bit this morning. But the Basilikos, you'll notice in verse 47, he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee. And rather than wait or see where he was going to go, he went to Jesus at Cana. All right. He didn't wait for Jesus to make the rounds in Galilee. He didn't wait for Jesus to settle at some place in Nazareth, maybe, or in Capernaum or wherever, Sephoris or uh, other Galilean towns. Uh, but he traveled from Capernaum to Cana to meet with Jesus, about a 20-mile journey. 
All right. It's not like you hop in your Mustang and you drive the 20 miles. This is a, a significant day's travel uh, or even two days travel, depending on road conditions, weather and so forth, to try to traverse 20 land miles in the uh, in the ancient world. So but it's interesting. He heard that Jesus came into Galilee and uh, is, starts to give us this idea of what were these <clears throat> what were these networks like? You know, it's not like they have satellite news coverage. It's not like, you know, there's Fox News Channel with their live cameras right there at the border crossing saying, you know, you know, it's gotten to the point where you're almost uh, I, I start to ignore the little alert signs anymore. You know, you're watching the news. All of a sudden it's a you know, Fox News alert flashes and you're thinking, oh, wow, but something important must be going on. And then the, the alert logo kind of fades away and they get to this news reporter and it's something trivial, something minor. Like, oh, you know, the Air Force One just landed in Belgium, you know, and they pushed a ladder up to it. And he's going to come down the staircase and, ooh, you know, is that really a news alert? Okay, you know, planes take off, planes land. It's just kind of routine. Well, they didn't have that back then. How were they going to keep track of what was going on? And it's interesting because the Pharisees have their own keeping track, which we looked at in verse 1. And now here is the political structure, not necessarily the, we had, so we had the religious structure with the Pharisees. Now we have the political structure in view because this Basilikos is indeed a royal official. A, uh, a courtier, or there's different translations for it, and we'll examine that here in a moment. But uh, specifically coming from Capernaum, we can identify that this is, in all likelihood, a uh, member of the Herodian uh, clan, uh, the branch of the family of Herod that, that uh, is keeping track of this miracle worker. All right, so... Let's at least outline some points here this morning. Point one, Jesus returned to the scene of his first miracle. Cana of Galilee. Jesus returned to the scene of his first miracle. This is where he turned water to wine. Cana of Galilee. My projector is off. Thank you. Appreciate that. Is your husband a deacon? Must be. Okay. Good deal. Appreciate that. <laughs> you wonder who would have just... Other, I, would you just sat there for the next half hour watching a blank wall? I don't know. All right. All right. It shows how much grace the congregation has when the pastor can't figure out what's going on. Jesus returned to the scene of his first miracle, Cana of Galilee. John 4.46 refers to this. He came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. Just in case you lost track of what had happened between chapter 2 and chapter 4. And a reminder back to the event that we studied in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Now it's interesting, he's going to do a miracle here, and it's recorded in verse 54 as his second miracle. It says in verse 54, this is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. And John in this gospel is tracking seven signs that... The outline of these seven miracles is sufficient unto the uh, gospel message of Jesus Christ. And I think I've mentioned that in the past as well. There were other miracles in between. We don't want to get worked up about that. There's skeptics and critics and mockers and so forth will say, well, wait a minute. You know, wasn't he doing other miracles when he was in Jerusalem? You know, we, we read at the end of chapter 2 that he was doing miracles. Um in verse chapter 2 and verse 23 there he is in Jerusalem and he's driven people out of the temple and then he did some signs there and it says in 223 he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during his feast and many believed in his name observing his signs which he was doing so there were miracles going on in Jerusalem although the gospel of John doesn't see fit to record what those miracles might have been all right and uh, you'll notice in verse 24 there, Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, recognizing that while they had a bit of excitement and zeal and, and, uh, and, and, and uh, eagerness because of the miracles, that they had no interest in the message. We'll see that as well. 
So back here in chapter 4, when, the, when it tells us this is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea and Galilee, John's not trying to ignore the miracles that were done there in Jerusalem, but they don't fit his purpose in, in demonstrating the seven miracles that he's recording that communicate the gospel message. And I hope we can keep that in our mind as well. At some point, uh, and the format we're teaching this in maybe doesn't lend itself to that, but at some point, perhaps, a worthwhile study would be just simply to go through the seven miracles of John and, and outline how these seven miracles can be a gospel record. Um, but John 20 and verse 30 tells us there were many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And uh, remember, you know, if everything had been written down, the whole world couldn't contain all the books anyway. But he says, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So you can take the seven miracles or the eight miracles. Some, uh, like John Niemela, will say the resurrection itself was also a miracle. So there's eight miracles presented in the Gospel of John. You can take that outline of either seven or eight, and you can give a gospel message so that uh, anyone uh, under such teaching will understand that Jesus is the Christ and that uh, believing they may have life in his name. Now, back to Galilee, though, and for miracle number two in Galilee, both of which occurring in Cana, we have the uh, interesting things being spoken. All right. Let me just give you a clue. Water to wine. Uh, man can't do that. Only God can do that. Only God can supply salvation. Miracle number two, it must be accepted on the basis of faith. And this man here, this nobleman, is going to believe Jesus' promise on the basis of faith. Jesus says, go your way, your son lives. And the man believes. And he gets back to Capernaum. And even before he gets back to Capernaum, he finds out that the son is healed. Okay? So this is a story uh, dealing with not only a miracle, but also observing the faith of this nobleman. And so in the first two miracles that we have, the water to wine and the healing of the son, here we recognize only God can do it. And we must accept his promise on the basis of faith. Okay? And that's your, kind of your first introduction to how you give the gospel. When it comes to salvation, only God can do it. Only God can accomplish what needs to be done in order to provide redemption to the human race. And secondly, you have to accept it on the basis of faith. See, your response to God's promises can only be on the basis of faith. Nothing else uh, will um, appropriate that benefit to your account. All right, so he's returning back to the scene of his first miracle. And this becomes a, a remarkable contrast because you'll notice at verse 47, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him. Now he heard about the Judean miracles. He heard about the Judean ministry. He heard about Jesus because of Judea, not because of Galilee. Okay. Likewise, in verse 45, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. Why? having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. Okay? The things that we don't find here are any reference to the water to wine, other than John's, uh, John's uh, editorial reference to it. The people have no acknowledgement of that. It doesn't say, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having remembered the water to wine miracle. Okay? Because other than those servants and his disciples and Jesus' mother, nobody knew about that miracle. The, the, the butler didn't know anything about it. The bride and groom didn't know anything about it. Most of the drunk guests didn't know anything about it. Okay, Other than the fact that they were feeling pretty good and here comes wine better than any they've had up till now. Okay, That was a private miracle. And so too with this Basilikos, with this royal official, he, uh, he comes... Hearing that Jesus has come out of Judea, the, the uh, emphasis there being on Judea, he has no framework for the first miracle that was done. All right. So subpoint A, that first miracle was a private work of power for the manifestation of his glory to his disciples. That first miracle was a private work of power for the manifestation of his glory to his disciples. And when we peek back to chapter 2, we see exactly that's what it was. In verse 11, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You know, the, the wedding guests benefited simply by having, you know, wine available when the wine had run out. But the disciples benefited spiritually. 
They benefited by observing a manifestation of Jesus Christ's glory and beginning the process of learning who the Christ truly was. So it was a private work of power, not a big public splash. Jerusalem was a bit of a public splash because the people made it that way. Not that Jesus was promoting that. Not that Jesus was uh, trying to make a big splash. See, because while there were many flocking to him, he wasn't entrusting himself to them. He wasn't uh, letting it get to his head that all these crowds were starting to praise his name and things. It tells us he did not entrust himself to them. He was not going to allow the, the enthusiasm of the crowds to, to allow him to lose focus on what it was he was supposed to be doing. See, that's something we're praying about here in terms of the, the deacons and our uh, thoughts about expansion and relocation, different things with our facilities and so forth. Let's not, yes, the Father's blessed us with more people than we've ever had and more finances than we've ever had, but wait a minute, let's not get prideful, let's not get boastful about it, and certainly let's not think that it's something we've earned or deserved. Let's continue to teach the Word of God and do what we're supposed to be doing. This private work of power. And secondly, it was unobserved by most of the Galileans who would be impressed by the Jerusalem miracles. It went unobserved by most of the Galileans who would be impressed by the Jerusalem miracles. And here we just see the indications that John is recording again and again and again for us. And let's remember that this is the fourth and the last gospel after Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already been written. And that the audience for this gospel already understands that in this Galilean ministry, there are thousands and thousands that are following after Christ. There's huge crowds. The, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, well attended. The feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, all these other things. Crowds and crowds and crowds were coming to Jesus. And John is letting us know that even in these early stages that the motivation wasn't what it should have been. That they were there for the miracles. That when he fed the 5,000, they wanted him to do it again and again and again and again. They had no interest in listening to the, the bread of life message, for example. And the Gospel of John is helping us to understand these things long before the tide turns and people start abandoning him. Now, that's going to happen. The tide is going to turn. They're going to start departing in droves and then the the uh, adversary starts to promote the desire for murder against him and he gets crucified but long before that hinge event where the the popularity drops and, and he starts headed towards the cross even before that this conflict was still here where motivation wasn't what it should have been where people were impressed with the miracles and the gee whiz value of it and not listening to the message that went with those miracles See, like driving the money changers out of the temple. That's a pretty significant event. But rather than be, you know, with the gee whiz value of, wow, look what he did. Are you listening to what he was saying about his father's house being a house of merchandise, about the, the house of prayer that it was supposed to be? And the thing, no. See, they're looking at him as this political movement, not as one bringing a message from God the Father. And I think this contrast with a private work of power, such as the water to wine in Cana, and then the very public miracles that impressed everybody, I think that's extraordinary. Because we have similar aspects today in terms of Pentecostals, charismatic movements, those that want to have the, the gee whiz spectacular works of power, and all these other things, you know, faith healers, and all this other being slain in the Spirit, and all these very visible, you know, things, they're all demonic. See, and and yet uh, and people ask, well, you know, do you believe in healing? Well, sure. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord is our healer, and I believe in prayer meetings, and I believe in praying for healing, and God can heal, and He does heal all the time. But are you looking for the the entertainment value, the big show, the big demonstration of power, and all that? God's not in that business anymore. He does not have to validate any further writing of Scripture. See, because there is no more writing of Scripture at this time. In the, in the apostolic era, absolutely. The, the apostles and prophets that were writing the New Testament, they had to have their credentials uh, established. So people would accept their writing as being inspired Scripture. But since the canon of Scripture is closed, there's no more need for that. 
So let's not be caught up in the excitement, the, the, the gee whiz value of the miracle, as these folks were. Okay, We've already read back in chapter 2 this aspect when they were, they were believing, observing the signs that he was doing. And, and so, I mean, we, we praise the Lord that they're saved, that they're believing, but we also want to keep in mind that that, uh, that thorny ground and that stony ground faith is going to fall away. That they're going to have that immediate excitement, but when difficulties come, they're going to they're going to peel away. And Jesus understood that. That's why he was not entrusting himself to them. And here in chapter four, we find a bit of exasperation, where uh, this nobleman comes and says, "You know, you got to hurry to Capernaum." And Jesus says, um, "Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe." And the Lord is just nailing it right there, dead on bullseye. These guys are, are just chasing after the miracles. And that's the wrong priority. Now, secondly, we're introduced to this royal official. Point two, let's examine this royal official. We have in the text, Tis Basilikos, a certain Basilikos. Not just any Basilikos, but a certain Basilikos. And um, <laughs> it's a difficult word, ju- just simply judging by the fact that all the different um, Bible translators do different things with it. I meant to start that program a moment ago. We'll let that get going. I just wanted to show you all the different ways that uh, verse uh, 46 gets translated. In the New American Standard, it reads, And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. That's the 95 update. In the old New American Standard, before the 95 update, it says there was a certain royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. And with the 95 update, they dropped the word certain, feeling that it was somehow, you know, extraneous or somehow redundant. All right? If I say there was a royal official at Capernaum whose son was sick, or I say there was a certain royal official at Capernaum whose son was sick. There's not much difference between those two statements, is there? You know, there was a royal official or there was a certain royal official, okay? As soon as you modify what you're dealing with, whose son was sick, well, we understand, okay, we're focusing in on one guy, all right, whoever that is. We don't know his name, but there was a guy with a sick kid, okay? And so I I expect that, for readability purposes in the English, that the word certain is kind of um, unnecessary. Okay, But it is there in the Greek text, and the, um, the little particle tis is uh, a lot of fun to deal with. In fact, when John Nemo was here for our pastor's conference, he had a whole message on tis, because a lot of times in the Greek text, we're not given a name, we're just told about tis. A certain one, a certain man, a certain royal official, a certain Pharisee, a certain lawyer, a certain rich guy, whatever. Tis is very common, just simply identifying a particular individual that comes into contact with Jesus Christ. And that's what we have here. A certain basilikos. Number 937 in the Strong's Index. Really, it's an adjective. It's like red, yellow, green, uh, tall, handsome, um, long-winded, okay? It's, it's an adjective. And um, meaning uh, belonging to a king or of a king or concerning a king. Uh, the, the noun basileus, number uh, 935, is the noun for king. So this is not a king coming to Jesus, but it is um, kingish, right? King is a noun, kingish. Is that an adjective? may not be a real adjective. I just made it up. But something is kingish or kingly. Okay, that means it's related to a king somehow. And that's this official. Now, that could be an official government agent that is represents the king. Could be a family member of a king. Could be a servant of a king. In any event, it's just simply an adjective, something relating, related to or belonging to a king. And so... I think it's interesting in terms of the uh, different texts involved for John 4.46. Most of the English translators have chosen 
to uh, go with the idea of royal officials. Some, though, call him a steward. Some call him a courtier, a courtier, C-O-U-R-T-I-E-R, someone who just simply serves in the king's court, like a messenger or a steward or some kind of other official in the king's court. And I think I have... This will be a little extraneous, but why not? Let's do it. The opportunity to look up John 4.46 in every Bible and uh, see how the different uh, translations handle it. Uh, But usually it's understood that this is somebody attached to the royalty present at Capernaum, meaning the Herodian royalty, see, not the uh, Roman royalty, as it were, not uh, Caesar or anybody related to Caesar's family, not Pontius Pilate or anybody associated with with Pilate, the governor, but dealing with the Herodian royalty, uh, that is the son of Herod the Great, the uh, Herod Tetrarch here over the Galilean region. So... um, I should have left Greek Bibles in there too. Uh, Basilikos in almost every Greek text. Uh, Darby calls him a courtier. C-O-U-R-T-I-E-R. Courtier. Uh, nobleman in the ASV. Royal official in the Amplified. Um, hey, I even got some Spanish Bibles here. Ayi cierto oficial. All right. In the Latin, the Byzantine, King James calls him a certain nobleman. English Standard calls him an official, uh, a government official in the Good News translation, royal official in the uh, Holman, the New Holman, um, different terms for it. They have a hard time with it. A couple of these I thought were interesting. One of the king's important officers. Well, all right, New Century version. NIV, a uh, certain royal official. And so forth. Anyway, it's just a spiffy utility where if you have a verse and you want to see how it's employed in different translations, this little utility will look it up for you in every Bible that you own. All right. He's a royal official. Subpoint A. He's not named specifically. Even though John, the author, was not hesitant to name names. In fact, it's remarkable that he's not named even though John was not hesitant to name names. For example, in John 18.10, it's his writing style that he, if he knows the name, he will cite it. And it may be that John never did learn this man's name. John, uh, here being very young, of course, he names the when uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane in a couple more years. By this time, John's a couple years older, and maybe he knows more people. But... <laughs> in the Garden of Gethsemane incident, for example, if uh, you read about the disciples and the Romans, and here they come, they're going to arrest Jesus, and one of Jesus' disciples grabs a sword and chops off a slave's ear. Well, John tells us that it was Peter. <laughs> All right? John makes it real clear. Okay, not just one of Christ's disciples. Peter grabbed a sword, chopped off the slave's ear, and, oh, by the way, that slave's name was Malchus in John 18.10. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. Okay, so John is not adverse to naming names. In fact, it's, he's rather, uh, it's, he's, he likes it. He likes to name names when he knows the name. See, and uh, it's interesting. You wonder who did he know and when did he know him and how young was John in 30 A.D.? If he's going to live to 100 A.D., for example, before his death of old age, he's going to live 70 years past this event. Um, It's likely that he's a teenager here in 30 A.D. and He's a little bit older, you know, two years older by the time of the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, two and a half years older uh, at the time of the Garden of Gethsemane. So it may be that this early in Jesus' ministry, he doesn't know who this political figure is. So he just calls him a certain official. Likely, he was an official in the court of Herod. And I've already stated, the Roman government was all based in Caesarea on the coast. 
and they, the Roman government, uh, you know, for example, uh, Pontius Pilate as the governor, um, was in Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. And he had <coughs> officers and soldiers stationed in Jerusalem. They had officers and soldiers stationed in, in various places throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Uh, but the political offices were in, in uh, Caesarea, uh, Caesarea. They were not in Capernaum. And so it's likely an official in the court of Herod. We also have a couple of other clues in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts that actually there was some positive volition in the household of Herod, that some folks actually got saved during this period of time. And following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there will be people mentioned that are actively involved as members of the church in the early church. There's a fellow named Chuzaz in Luke 8.3 and then Manan in Acts 13.1. Luke 8.3 Some of the women that were coming here helping to finance the Lord's ministry, including Mary Magdalene and then Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and then Susanna and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. Well, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, demonstrates that in the household of Herod in uh, Capernaum, in that region there of Galilee, that there were those that were positive to the ministry of Jesus Christ. You know, the, the family of Herod itself was an Edomian family, an Edomite family, but they had a lot of intermarriage among the Jews. Mostly they were trying to gain legitimacy for themselves. <laughs> they weren't Jewish, but they wanted a claim to the Jewish uh, race in order to have a legitimacy to their throne. Herod marrying the daughter of, of uh, one of the Maccabean priests and things like that, trying to uh, have a legitimate claim to ruling over the Jewish people. The other one there being Manan in Acts 13.1, one of the leading Bible teachers in uh, Antioch, the great missionary church of Antioch. They were at Antioch and the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, Saul of Tarsus, about to be renamed Paul. So uh, two examples, in the, one in the book of Luke and one in the book of Acts, that demonstrates that in the, within the household uh, or the court of Herod was indeed positive volition. And we're not trying to claim that this Basilikos in John 4 was Chooses or was Manan. We have no way to know because the text doesn't tell us who the person was. And I'm not going to you know, be a stretch to try to claim something like that. Because uh, the text doesn't claim anything like that. But we can recognize that within the, the court of Herod, there was indeed positive volition. So this is not unreasonable that this Basilikos would travel from Capernaum to Cana to talk to this miracle worker about his sick son. And that's exactly what's going on. Point three, the son of the Basilikos was sick in Capernaum. Too sick to travel, actually. The father travels, but the son is left behind. The son of the Basilikos was sick at Capernaum. There was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now, the official doesn't bring his son. It is a 20-mile journey. A full day's travel. In fact, a very hard day's travel. You... 15 miles is a good day's travel. On the Roman roads, you could get a bit more than that if you're on horseback. You know, and with Roman roads, if you're a royal official, you've got the best of transportation working for you there. Uh, but even if it's, you know, it could be up to two days, depending on the weather and depending on the circumstances of the of the journey. And uh, but this kid, this child, is too sick to make that trip, and and. And uh, so the royal official is very anxious to travel to Capernaum and to grab Jesus and travel all the way back. It's not just a 20-mile one-way journey. This Basilikos is counting on the 40-mile round trip that he has to get to Cana and he has to bring Jesus back to Cana to do this miracle. Okay? The, the royal official is counting on the, the, the round trip to get his son healed. It's not going to happen. Jesus is going to heal him right there from Cana and say, you know, go back home, I can do it from here kind of thing. All right, but the Basilikos doesn't know that. 
Now he's sick. Now we've got a couple of clues here with respect to this son. Again, he's not named. We don't know who he is. We don't know whether he also was maybe Manan, you know, brought up in the house of, you know, there's legends and traditions. I think the early church tried to attach as many names as they could, maybe out of just a, a romantic, uh, you know, kind of thing. But we don't know that this was Manan. We don't know who this was. He's just the son of the Basilicos. Now it is, uh, it makes it for an amazing vocabulary study because he's called a huios, a pideon, and a pice. We have three words for child in the in the Greek New Testament. All three of them are used here in this one text with relationship to this boy. <laughs> so for beginning Greek students that will try to learn vocabulary for words that mean son or child or boy, um, all three are employed here for this one kid. He is a huios, H-U-I-O-S. That's number 5207 in your Strong's Index. He's also called a Pideon, P-A-I-D-I-O-N. And that's a, young, a bit younger term, a term more of affection, and that's really the word that, that uh, this Basilicos is using in verse 49. Sir, come down before my little child dies. Okay, so it's more of a diminutive term, or a little child, a term of endearment. A huios is simply a son, regardless of how old he is or how young he is. And then a pice, referencing that he is in fact a minor, that he is a boy, that he's not a man, that he is a child. Oftentimes pice also could could be used for a servant, but here is just a good translation to call him a, a boy or a son in verse 51. So he's called a huios in verse 46, 47, and 50. He's called a pideon in verse 49, a tender term showing the love of this basilicos. And he's called a pice in verse 51. All three terms are employed here. It's a, it's a fun vocabulary study for a beginning Greek student who's going through trying to... And it's also fun, too, when, when pastors form a very harsh division and they say, well, you know, a huios means this and a technon means that. And technon's not in this passage, by the way. And a pideon means something else. And we're going we're gonna to create these hard and fast rules for if you see this word, it has to mean such, such and such. Well, slow down, wait a minute. These words are being used rather interchangeably, rather freely, all of them applying to this one sick boy in uh, in Capernaum. Likewise, his sickness, and I'm running out of time, we'll just give you the sickness. He is without strength and he's at the point of death. The sickness is ostheneo, literally no strength. Ostheneo, without strength or sick. And he's at the point of apathenesco, he's at the point of death. Verse 47 and verse 49, explaining why he was not in condition to travel. Explaining the urgency of the need for the miracle. He's described as both sick and at the point of death. Verse 46, verses 47 and 49. And these also are word studies that can be pursued, ostheneo and apathenesco, things that are going to be done away with. Remember, there's no more sickness, no more death. Things are going to be done away with, no more tears. And here's Jesus Christ walking on earth who has authority, who is performing miracles related to these things in time, things that aren't even going to exist in the new heavens and the new earth. So it's kind of interesting to think how um, we view such things as being miracles, Right? In reality, it's just simply normal for what the new heavens and new earth are going to be like. And Jesus Christ interjects a little bit of normal into what we have here and now. We call it a miracle. See, no, it's normal. <laughs> what we have now is fallen creatures in a fallen world. We have the abnormal effects of sin, which is sickness and death. You and I live in this abnormal, fallen, cursed world. Remember, the creation groans. And so here we are living in the abnormal, but we think it's normal. And then so a miracle gets done and we go, oh, it's a miracle. When in reality, no, no more sickness, no more death. That's normal. That's what the eternal state's going to be like. That's what Adam and Eve were like before the fall with no sickness, no death. That's normal. What we live in is the abnormal, is world of sin. And the, the application of the miracle here to make the boy well, uh, it's called a miracle. But in reality, it's just simply the... the uh, assertion of what is supposed to be normal injecting that into our current circumstances so anyway different ways of looking at 
different things. Oh, and I'm out of time. My alarm is going off. Told myself I couldn't go long this session. I've gone long. It's 11.05. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We ask for your blessing upon this message, Father, that it would continue to dwell richly within us long after the, the actual words are, are, are spoken, long after the, uh, the, the sound vibrations stop echoing in our eardrums. Father, let, uh, let the impact of this message continue to reverberate within our soul. Open the eyes of our understanding and give us uh, uh, the blessing from this message. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.